0: If you've got a Bible, and I hope that you do, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter has been moving forward with the idea of how Christians ought to live as missionaries in light of such a great inheritance. And he says that there's privileges that come with this inheritance, certainly in the future, but even now. And in light of those privileges... It, they kind of awaken this sense of responsibility in Christians, in, in believers. There's a kind of a, a sense of responsibility of duty that comes out of that. And this includes, we just talked about last week, this includes being prepared to think deeply. Peter used that, that kind of funny phrase, gird up the loins of your minds. Okay, be prepared to think deeply, be sober minded, he said, be attentive. He also said that we need to run everything that we hear, think, see through the lens of scripture. And we do all of this while recognizing that our salvation comes from not our own righteousness, not our own work at all, but on, but from God's grace. When we're attentive to the ways of the Lord, Peter here and also New Testament author Paul agree that we're going to be able to resist the urge to conform to the pattern of the world around us. This apartness or separateness from the practices of the world is what makes us like the Lord. We're different. He said in previous verses, you also be holy in your conduct. And we do that because God says, I am holy that's that's why we're holy. So just as God is different or set apart from the world, Christians, we are supposed to be different and set apart from the world as well. And just to kind of throw our minds back to the the text that we finished last week with from Titus chapter 3, let me just read part of that. When the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. Not according to the works that we have done by righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's so much happening in those verses. If you didn't read through them again this past week, I'd encourage you Mark Titus chapter three, verses three through seven, and read it every morning. When you get out of bed, that would be a good way to start the day. We have been saved. Christian, you have been saved by the mercy of God, not your own righteousness. Peter's going to touch on that again this morning. Your justification by his grace reveals your imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that Peter's already talked about. Where is that being kept? It's being kept in heaven by God. So... What more could we say about these things? Well, a lot, actually. And Peter actually says a lot more. He expounds on this. And so look at chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. Short amount of text today, but there's a lot here. So let's read this together and then pray. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, help us to see the price that was paid, to see its worth and its value, to see its effect in our hearts and on our lives, Lord, and may we not just march on when we leave from this place as if nothing is different, Lord, because if we understand this, everything changes. Because we are not our own. We have been bought with a price and that price has been the blood of Jesus. And so Lord, may we be enthralled by that. Stand in awe of that. Find comfort and take joy in that truth that sacrifice. And so we thank you for it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so in chapter one so far, Peter has been explaining this idea of holiness and the set apartness of God and how Christians are supposed to reflect that holiness in their conduct. And now he's about to tell us why. Okay, that's, an, that's an important question. Kids ask this question a lot you know, in the first few years of their life, they're trying to understand the process of things. Why? Why do we do this? Now, sometimes probably they're just doing it to irritate mom and dad, but most of the time they're they're doing it because they want to know why, why the things are being done the way that they are. And it's good as parents for us to teach these things, and so Peter is teaching us. The question may come, well, why pursue, why put so much effort into pursuing godliness when everything around us is so ungodly? Why aim for holiness when our own very nature leads us back to live selfishly like we used to? Why do we have to cling to truth when the culture around us is just content to embrace a lie? Well, these are good questions, and Peter addresses these things in our text today. He says this is the motivation for godly living. Here's the why, you guys. We've been told that we ought to be holy as God is holy, but why? Here we go. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, don't forget to read this in context of the previous verses discussing holiness. It's not an easy task, right? We kind of ended last week with understanding that who is capable of being as holy as God? (laughs) No one could raise their hands on this. And so this task is great, it's monumental. How can we continually, as Paul says in in Romans chapter 12, how can we continually offer our bodies as living sacrifices? How do we do this? Only one way, to call on God as your father for help. That's the only way that this is possible. Just like the only way that you can be perfect in God's sight is by trusting in Christ's perfection, the only way that you could hope to live a sanctified life is by asking God for help. That's it. And so Peter puts it that way. If you call on him as father, Christians, that's the name that we have for God. And we shouldn't take that for granted or take that lightly. He is father of all who believe. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to ask God for help. A lifelong pursuit of holiness necessitates reliance on the Spirit of God. Because our own nature would lead us down paths that the Holy Spirit wouldn't. And when we call on him, we need to understand who God is, right? So Peter's already insisted. He said, look, this God is holy, set apart, totally different. In in that character trait of God, he's an impartial judge. Now, when we say the word judge, we we think about the, the black robe and the gavel in the hand. And maybe that's part of what Peter has in mind here. But every judge that we know has a slant, right? I mean, we just talk about the Supreme Court justices. There's a new one coming soon. And it's it's the big, is he going to be liberal or is he going to be conservative? conservative? And which way is he going to fall? We all know that every judge has a slant, but God doesn't. Because truth comes from God. He is impartial. This makes the balance of pursuing holiness while resting in God's own mercy even more important for us as Christians. We can't trick God we can't lie on the witness stand, right? He sees through it. He knows, he's impartial. You can't fake God out with just obligatory obedience or mindless, routine um, love or affection or obedience. He knows your heart, and that's what he wants. He wants your heart, not just your rigid compliance through this life. He's fair. He's impartial, and he judges rightly the hearts of men and women. Knowing this about God, then, Peter continues, we should conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. Now, this isn't the main point of the passage, so I don't want to spend all day on this, but let's discuss fear for a moment because Peter uses that word, and I think it's often misunderstood. He actually uses this word again a couple more times. in. You can see in chapter 2, verse 18, and then three more times in chapter three, he'll use the word fear. And there's a lot of talk today about fear, isn't there? A lot of people would even use the term culture of fear. And I think for good reason. I mean, just ask any dictator or tyrant, fear can be a great manipulator and motivator, can it? So is this what Peter and all the other biblical authors are getting at when they talk about the fear of the Lord? Is, does God intend to manipulate our behavior through fear? Is that what this means? Well, I hope you can understand that that's not the way we would explain it. Here's the thing about fear of the Lord, that, that phrase in particular. It's not just about outward behavior. You gotta, we have to keep that in mind. The fear of the Lord isn't just, just maneuvering our, our, like, uh, conduct alone to line up with what he says so that we make him happy. The fear of the Lord is a matter of the heart. Just ask Martin Luther. You're familiar with that name? He spent the early part of his life perfecting the show. You guys know what I mean when I say that? Perfecting the Christianity show so that everybody around him would look at him and say, man, what a godly individual. In fact, his efforts to become righteous on his own, if you read some of his books and memoirs. It actually drove him to hate the Lord. This fear of the Lord that he was trying to just ingrain in his body caused him to end up hating the Lord for a time. He figured out how to achieve outward appearance of righteousness, but the hollowness of it inside drove him to look at the Lord in a wrong way. He said it this way. This is a quote from Martin Luther. He said, To fear God is not merely just to fall upon your knees. Even a godless man and a robber can do that. But again, the fear of the Lord is a matter of the heart. I, I think Scripture always is best to expound on Scripture. So, listen to Psalm chapter one, twelve, verse one. This helpful is helpful in this conversation. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, comma, who greatly delights in his commandments. Okay, so now we're we're getting some more information. The author of Psalms one twelve is equating these things together. So, do you see how the the Bible? Itself talks a little bit differently about the fear of the Lord. The one who fears the Lord isn't just somebody who reluctantly attempts the outward action of keeping the Lord's commands. The one who truly fears the Lord also delights in his commandments, delights in that truth. Michael Reeves is a professor of theology at the Union School of Theology in Oxford, and he studied guys like Martin Luther and uh, some other guys like John Bunyan, who have written extensively about this topic of the fear of the Lord. I think what he says here is really helpful. He says, in reality, fear runs deeper than the behavior. It drives behavior. Sinful fear hates God and therefore acts sinfully. Right fear loves God and therefore has a sincere longing to be like him. To be like him. Isn't that what Peter has been getting at? When he said, be holy as I am holy, he quotes the Lord in that. We're made to know God in such a way that our hearts tremble at his beauty, splendor. And so I would say that the right kind of fear of God actually dispels the wrong kind of fear of God. Michael Reeves also says the gospel frees us from fear and gives us fear. It frees us from our crippling fears, giving us instead a most delightful fear. This is a, kind of a strange way to think about the fear of the Lord. It's almost like a paradox that we see here in the Bible. Because fear not, if you remember... It is a pretty common phrase in Scripture. It says, fear not. Um, we also hear verses that say, perfect love casts out all fear. So is, is fear a good thing or is fear a bad thing? Because we know that the fear of the Lord is referenced in times as a good thing as well. So which is it? How do we get to the bottom of this? A biblical fear of God, I think, does include understanding how much God hates sin. That plays into it for sure. It includes fearing his judgment on sin, but it doesn't include fearing him in a sense of our eternal judgment as Christians. We know, according to the book of Romans, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We do not fear God on judgment day. Not in that sense. Not as if we're afraid of him. I think Hebrews 12 helps us in this conversation as well. Hebrews 12 is the the chapter about discipline, and it kind of moves it into a family setting the dynamic between the father and his children, God disciplines those whom he loves. In fact, it's pretty clear that if you've not been disciplined by the Lord, then you don't know the Lord, then he is not your father. The problem is that when a kid receives discipline, and you guys all know this, they don't like it in the moment. I can remember very clearly several instances of discipline in my upbringing that I rebelled against. And yet now as a, as, an, as a dad, myself, and an adult, I see and understand the reasoning behind it. I'm thankful that my parents disciplined me even when I didn't like it. Parents, discipline your children in the Lord. It's right. He does it for his children. We should do it for ours as well. Now, we, we fear his just and impartial discipline so that we seek to live in ways that are different than what we used to live in ways that are different than the world around us, in a way that, in fact, pleases Him. That's what Psalm 112, verse 1 is saying, that those who fear the Lord will delight in His commands. And I think the inverse is true. Those who delight in His commands will fear the Lord. Do you fear the Lord? Let me ask another question. Do you delight in His commands? Because they go together. Peter's words, he says, "Conduct yourselves with fear." That doesn't sound like a negative thing in the context of that writing, does it? I don't think it does. I don't think he means it to be negative either. I think he means it to be an encouragement, and it continues in the next couple verses. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. Knowing, so this is the justification for the fear. This is why we ought to fear the Lord, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The word ransom here is really important. And Jason talked about it with the kids, if someone is going up to an auction block and, and purchasing something off of it. That's what the word ransom means. Literally, it means redeemed. It means bought back. The imagery Peter uses here, it does connect with the cross. Eventually with talking about the blood of Christ, but he, it doesn't reference it initially on the onset. I think it takes his our, our minds his readers minds back to Exodus chapter 30. There's laws put in place. There's taxes that are being referenced there. There's an allusion to the ransom of the people of Israel through a census tax that was given by the Lord. This tax was designed to cause the people of Israel to remember the Lord's work in their redemption It their ransom. Peter says that Christians aren't redeemed any longer with perishable things. What are the things that he mentions? Such as silver or gold. But with the precious blood of Christ. So before we set our minds too much on the blood and the cost of redemption, what does Peter say that Christians are redeemed from? What are we redeemed from? Because this may be what is important. It may be just as important. Can you be saved if you don't think you've ever sinned there has to be a stirring of the spirit towards repentance and faith before you ever even recognize i've messed up and need need a savior so when he says the futile ways inherited from your forefathers that's what we're saved from that's what we're redeemed from what does peter mean what are these futile ways well is he referring to the gentiles whose father forefathers, they didn't know what the Lord expected of them. They didn't know how to follow the ways of the Lord. Yeah, I think Peter is re- referring to them. Is he referring to Jews who their forefathers knew what God expected of them but rebelled anyway? Yeah, I think Peter's talking about them too. There's some verses that I've got listed in your notes that I want to run through quickly with you together. Because the Old Testament here weighs in very heavily on the feudal ways of the forefathers that Peter is referencing. Look at Zechariah chapter 1, verse 4. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the, father, the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, described, declares the Lord. Return from your evil ways. But they didn't listen. 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verses 7 and 8. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers, who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. Following the ways of their forefathers, Peter says, is futile. It was for them, and it still would be, were they to continue on in those ways. But just the Old Testament isn't the only place that has something to say about this. New Testament authors add even more detail. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We looked at this verse last week, and it's a pretty good description of the world we live in. It's oftentimes a pretty good description of our own heart. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. All of them away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. I love how Paul describes it there. He says, in these you too once walked. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in once in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I I could go on. The Bible goes on, but I, I think we get it. I think we understand the point here. At some point in our lives, every person, each one of us has believed in vain that the behavior and the tradition of the world around us would satisfy us. That's what we thought would make us happy. Maybe some of us today still think that. Maybe that's what we're chasing after, the things of this world to make us happy. But they won't. They can't. How could they? How could they satisfy us when we were meant to live for so much more? I stole that line from a Switchfoot song, if you didn't know. I think Peter's getting at something else here, though, too. The way of life that seeks to be justified by something other than the mercy of God alone is futile. Martin Luther found that kind of life to be empty and you will too because it is vanity. To borrow an illustration from the book of Ecclesiastes, it's like trying to catch the wind in your hands. Trying to catch smoke in your hands. You can't do it. It doesn't work. It's a futile, pointless, ridiculous exercise. Can't be done. It's only and always by the grace of God through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. You've been ransomed. You've been redeemed. You've been saved from futile ways of being made righteous. How? How have we been made righteous? How have we been freed from these futile ways of thinking and behaving? Well, we've been told what we've been redeemed from Those futile ways. Now Peter goes on to share what we've been redeemed by in verse 19. By the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now Peter's clear. It's the blood of Christ that ransoms people who were bound up in the futility of their forefathers. That's the point. That's the major theme of what he's getting at here. But he describes it using another Old Testament idea or imagery. One that he's already drawn on. Look back at verse 2. Talks about the sprinkling of the blood. For sprinkling with his blood. Now he's talking about uh, another instance of blood. What is he getting at? Well, this is the Old Testament sacrificial system. In verse 2, the sprinkling of of the blood was on the mercy seat. That atoned for the sins of the people and the priest. Verse 19 Peter references the blood of a lamb, and probably if you're like me, and probably like most of the readers that Peter had, your mind goes to the Passover, right? The lambs were sacrificed at more times than just the Passover, but that's the big one. Sticks out in our minds. Peter sets Jesus up as this lamb, this Passover lamb, without spot, without blemish, pure, and I think this is in reference to the completely sinless character and nature of Jesus. If he were not without blemish, he would not have been qualified to be your redeemer. Think about that for just a moment. Purity and redemption, then, I think, are connected here. Now, here are two true statements that I was thinking through this week, and then they result in something huge. If Jesus were not pure, righteous, spotless, then sinners could not be redeemed first statement second one is similar when sinners are redeemed they are sprinkled clean with his blood so the result is something that's very important for believers and it's this your redemption hangs on jesus's purity if he were not sinless then you could not be redeemed you could not be made pure now this hits on a couple of different levels Let's start on the individual level. This is huge. This has incredible implications. If you think back to a book maybe you've never read before, the book of Hosea. That's It's, an, it's an, a unique book, rich in analogy and imagery, an incredible story. And Hosea is told to redeem his bride. Listen to chapter 3, verse 2. He says, So I bought her back for myself. That language should sound familiar. So I bought her back for myself. Fifteen pieces of silver and about ten bushels of barley. Believer, Christian, you've been unfaithful. Just like Hosea's wife. You have been unfaithful, but you have been bought back. Not with pieces of silver. That's what Peter says. Not with silver, not with gold, certainly not with bundles of barley. You've been bought back. You've been ransomed. You've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Paul, I think, in a possible reference back to Hosea in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, he says it like this. You are not your own for you were bought with a price. You want to talk about value? You want to talk about self-worth? Here it is. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. This has huge implications for us as individuals on your individual salvation. God has saved you, has bought you back, he has redeemed you from the clutches of the futile ways of our forefathers. But I think this hits on a corporate, church-wide level as well. Jesus sets the standard of love, specifically from a husband to a wife. And Paul captures this in Galatians chapter 5. Let me read verses 25 through 27. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Now listen to these words. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Same words that Peter uses in First Peter chapter 1. Church body, you are holy. You are set apart. You are different because of Jesus' perfect blood and because of the washing of the water with the word. You are being made spot-free and wrinkleless because of Christ's purity. It has that effect on his people. Now, we can look around at the church, probably point some big fingers at the church in America specifically, and we can say, man, we are far from holy. We are far from Perfect. And that's simply because God's work isn't finished in us yet. But think about it too. If the church is, to some degree, the sum of its parts, right? Some of us are the eye, the ear, the mouth, the nose, the foot. This is what Paul says. If we're the sum of our parts, then wouldn't it make sense that the more that the the parts are holy, are being made holy, the whole is being made holy as well? I think this is kind of what is infused in Peter's language here. We are set apart, brothers and sisters. We are not like the world. We are to be holy, and we are being made holy by the purity of Christ. So that hits on a level of individual, personal salvation and redemption. This hits on a a church-wide level. And I want you to understand, if you're here without Christ, that's not a, a slam on you. That's just a... At a mission of fact, God has not saved you, and I would encourage you to think deeply on these things this morning. Jesus is clear. He says in John chapter 6 verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up to life on the last day. You know what this tells me for you if you don't know Christ? Is that God is still calling people to Jesus today. If you feel the drawing of the Lord, don't mistake it for something else. When God draws people to himself, they will respond. This is what Jesus says. No one comes unless the Father comes, and when they do, they belong to him. Only God would draw you to himself. Now, maybe you're out there and you think, Rod, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. I'm I'm too far gone. I've done too many bad things. God probably wouldn't even want me. Listen to Jesus. Also in John six, he says this, everything that the father gives me will come to me. There's that assurance. And I'll never turn away the one who comes to me. I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me that I should not lose anything that he has given to me, but should raise it to life on the last day. This is my father's will that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him to life on the last day. Do you see what Jesus is saying? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how far gone you think you are. He's calling to you. He's drawing you to Himself, and He will not turn you away. I'll never turn away the one who comes to me, He says. So how do we come Jesus that's tackled in that last verse verse 40 of John 6 everyone who sees the son and believes in him should have eternal life we see Jesus Peter has put him up as the sacrificial lamb without spot and without blemish and if you see him today and you believe in that for your sin covering then you have been saved and he has drawn you to himself and he will never lose you He will never cast you out. Christ as your substitute has shed his perfect blood to buy you back. And he's still doing it today. He still redeems people. He still ransoms people with his precious blood. We just believe and we set our eyes on him and he gives eternal life and he gives it even today. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this it's it's easy for us to think of an exchange of of money we go and we buy things and we take it home we've bought that lord it's it's more difficult to think of it in a personal salvation sense because sometimes we just don't think we're as bad as we really are we don't we don't see the need as deeply as your word describes it as we've looked at this morning from old and new testament lord uh, you don't pull any punches we are We are children of the evil one. We are caught. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And they go into detail on what those are. Anger, malice, hatred, sexual morality, impurity, coarse joking. All of these things, Lord, your wrath is coming. And yet you have made a way for us to be made right with you. The precious blood of Christ that was spilled on the cross and when we look and set our eyes to the sun and we believe we will have eternal life and you, will, you won't cast us out, you won't turn us away and you will keep us forever and you're keeping us for that inheritance that we've been talking about. And Lord, it's, it's with joy, it's with gratefulness, it should be with humility that we say thank you, Lord. And so I pray for any who are listening this morning who have not looked to the Son and believed. Maybe they thought they did, but their lifestyle shows otherwise. Lord, I pray that as you're tugging on hearts, that you're, you're drawing people to yourself today, Lord, that many would come, that they would see the truth, the purity of Christ and the sacrifice of his blood, and Lord, that they would know that they could be covered and made pure in your sight as well through belief, through faith. That is a gift of yours. Thank you for that gift. I pray that... Lord, we would not turn it away today. In Christ's name, amen.